how can you be part of a religious community that straight up sometimes it feels like the church is trying to hold the church on. seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the why are they so obsessed with keep trying to get answers i would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming the church is the most vocal political voice against immigration churches still the one they claim that worship was the actual the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church is more concerned with being a good American anti-critical than they are being homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. <sighs> the church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And today, our very special guest is Becca McNeil. And Becca is a journalist, wife, and mother of two. And how old are your kids now? Six and eight. Nice. You're like, we're three and five. So you're just like yeah. a little. We're just one little step down the road. And three, yeah, like, I'll say, I really like three and five. I like six and eight a lot. I really love three and five. Yeah. No, those, I like the two to four, five ish, six Christmas time. It's very, yeah. very special. They're at the height fun. of like saying hilarious things, but also like going to the bathroom by themselves. Yeah, it's also the height of parenting where like I'm supposed to be holding firm boundaries, but what you said it technically is inappropriate, but it's hilarious. So yeah, now I'm, we, I have to go in the other room and laugh before I tell you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Becca's work has appeared in Christianity Today, Sojourners, Relevant, the Texas Tribune, ESPN's The Undefeated, the Christian Science Monitor, Texas Public Radio, and elsewhere. Oh. In addition to pieces about parenting, she writes about education, immigration, and faith communities, as well as the occasional, just just occasional op-ed calling the American Evangelical Church to lay down its idols of white supremacy and patriarchy, which I'm sure makes you like a huge star with many churches down in Texas. Oh, yeah. I'm everybody's favorite. (laughs) One just ran today, and I looked at the comment section right before I got on and was like, whoo, okay. Yeah, you're all, I, I uh, needed some energy and that gave me just a slight jolt of offense and anxiety to get me going for the, <laughs> yeah, for the next Exactly. Thing. Why and I do new, what I do. And uh, Becca's new, new book coming October 11th, which we'll be talking about today, Bringing Up Kids When Church Lets You Down, which we spoke briefly before I started recording, is so important and relevant and urgent in a, in a, where I, where I think it's really at the forefront of so many people's minds right now who are growing, evolving, changing, wrestling with church and have kids running around their house who they want to pass on this great tradition to, but how do we do that well right now? And the subtitle is a guide for parents questioning their faith. So good. Becca, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today and also with the listeners as well. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks so much. Yeah. I'm always interested in the initial catalyst or engine for writing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where creativity and, and offering is such a unique thing where if you spend time writing or people who preach and teach and do different talks, there's, there could be moments where you're watching a movie or a documentary and it builds up and there's one line that hits you in the moment, that one line, you're like, this is a book or this is a sermon or this is a teaching. And it's not because you're saying that one line exactly, but that thing does something to you that then gives birth to this other thing. So I'm always interested in that. So what is the, what is the, the engine, the catalyst, like the energy source for, for this work right now? 
Yeah. Well, as a journalist, the catalyst for most of my work and most of the stories that I pursue, most of the stuff that I do is um, stories. I things I hear people say, usually when we're talking about something else, there will be some little side comment or once I'm done with an interview for a story, we'll get chatting about other things. And I immediately start making notes like, Oh, that's actually something I'd like to look more into. And so um, I'm like a dumpster journalist. I dig around for other things like the throwaway lines and the things that people didn't pursue and go, Hmm, what's Mm. the story there? Mm. And the, what I was hearing is that I was doing a lot of reporting and people, after we would get done with what we were supposed to be talking about, we'd chat about our kids or they'd be teachers talking about different challenges and teaching immigration, talking to people. And they would get into where they were struggling to deal with this topic with their kids. And maybe they used to have an explanation. They used to have some framework that they could have explained. They could have said, I used to be able to explain my kids explain immigration to my kids like this the country has laws and you need to abide by the laws because that's what the bible says blah 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 but then they had seen our broken immigration system with their own eyes and now they were struggling to reconcile things and then more and more they were finding that that was putting them at odds with their faith community mm-hmm. and because i was talking to a lot of evangelicals um former evangelicals now, some of them. And, but what really the final moment that made me go, all right, that's it. I'm writing all this down is that I was talking to my best friend about how we were raising our kids. And it was during the pandemic. And I was finding myself to to kind of address a lot of the anxiety that I was feeling. I was finding myself going to scripture and I had these the scripture that I had, you know, quote unquote, hidden in my heart as a child <laughs> and it was still there and it was so comforting mm. and I was happy. And then I thought, I want my kids to have that because mm. whatever comes, I want them to have that reservoir of comfort. Mm-hmm. And I, but then I thought, how do I give that to them? Like the way I learned it was in doing sword drills and racing through the Bible to get gold stars and memorizing it because I was going to use it in a debate with an atheist mm-hmm. one day and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And that wasn't, that wasn't all how those I hypothetical to... atheists out there who are just waiting to have a rational debate about whether or not your faith can stand the test of reason. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. They're going to like pop out their little travel podiums and have a formal debate right there. Yeah. And exactly. And Cause that's how conversation goes too, is like this mm. parry back and forth of proof texts. Mm. Um, weirdly enough, most of, Christians conversations go like that, not atheist and Christian mm-hmm. conversations. Mm-hmm. But so I'm talking to my best friend and I said, her son is um, a little bit younger than my youngest. So she wasn't quite there yet. And I said, why, why are you going to teach? Are you going to teach him scripture? Are you going to, y'all going to memorize it? She's like, I-, I want to, but I have no idea how I don't, we kind of reached the same place. And I thought, okay, this is like an easy access example of this larger conversation that I've been having with so many people over the last few years. Mm. And so I, that's when I thought, okay, at first I thought, okay, I'm going to write a, a big journalism project. I'm going to do like a big long form piece. And the more I talk to people about it, they're like, I'm pretty sure this is a book. Mm, um, it's awesome. too, 
there's too many angles and facets and stuff. So that's how it happened. Mm, yeah, that's one. I love how, I mean, it's not like you're trying when you're in conversations with people as a dumpster journalist, you're like the one line is going to make the next thing. But I do even love the art of that recognition and being a seer and being someone who sees things and immediately makes enough connections to be like, that's a bigger thing, you know? Cause mm -hmm. I, I just love that. You know, one thing I think about is a lot of clergy, because I was a pastor for the last 10 years, and I think a lot of clergy are really good at reading the Bible, but they're not good at reading reality. Mm -hmm. And they're not good at reading the text of their own hearts. What is happening in my life? Like, what is, I just heard someone say like, you know, God, this spirit always shows up autobiographically, you know? So how mm -hmm. are we always reading our life? How are we reading the spirit through our lives? Right. And that's a skill. And we do that outwards. We do that inwards. So I, even just creatively, those things are always fascinating. So I love that. And what, Yes. What, what happens to the history, the tradition of for our kids when we've gone through enough, grown enough, change enough where the spaces that gave us that helped hide those scriptures in our hearts, we're probably not going to take them there into those spots for all kinds of reasons. I like this. There's a lot of unhelpful, damaging, dangerous, et cetera, things there but there is a good and there's this larger story I want them to be initiated into, right? I want them to know these things. And that question is just so relevant right now. I'm interested, tell me a little bit more about like your own story that led to doubting, questioning and evolving. Like what are the cracks in the frame for you? The moments of like visions of new possibilities that invite you further? Because even I think, the individual story will draw so many others has the potential to draw so many others into I'm wrestling with what to do with my kids because here's my journey and where I'm at. So what is that? Is it like the sword drills? And one day I'm like, I'm done with these. <laughs> <laughs> I was so traumatized by sword drills. No, I'm just kidding. It was not, it was fine. Um, <laughs> if you're doing sword drills with your kids, you're not hurting them. Um, I don't think, but no, I, I think the reason I was having all those conversations is because my story is very, very common. There's nothing exceptional in the story of a woman who grew up in a complementarian denomination, a church that did not ordain women and felt at a certain point in my twenties called into ministry wow. and then immediately began bumping up into things and that leading to social strife, which led to betrayal and rejection, which led to, you know, it just snowballed. So what started as a theological situation that I wanted to make a career in a denomination that had spent my entire life telling me that they were the only people with all the right answers, that they had the right doctrine, that this was where the true believers were and had this very stern and rigid and certain reason why women couldn't be in ministry mm. and, a, and a host of other things that I was also beginning to doubt. Cause I went to graduate, I went to a secular graduate school. My degrees are in yeah. communication. You, you, you were, you had the, you had the quintessential experience that youth pastors warn about, you know, when you go to university, oh, yeah. religion 151 and biology. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. I'm, a, I am like, 
you know, I want everyone to enjoy my book and youth pastors. If you need a reason to buy it, mm. I am a cautionary tale. You can like buy it and give it to parents and be like, if you don't keep them safe, if you send them to secular college, this is like what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I fully accept that there's some people who will read that and be like, I told you. And I even say in the book, like they were right. This is exactly what happened. Um, I see it as a good thing that I went, met people who thought you're like, you're like, all those things did happen. I'm like, but you're like, but I'm just, I'm happier out here. So it's okay. (laughs) Well, and I think I'm more loving as a result Mm. because I learned to love people who were different and didn't just Mm. write them off as soon as Mm. we disagreed. Mm. And um, I think I was questioning a lot of things I was able to kind of do it as an intellectual exercise with the exception of the women in ministry thing, because that actually like had a consequence that I had to deal with. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And so that was like the first thing. And then all the hurt. I mean, so many people, ha- if you're in a certainty based religion, you have so many people who it began with a doubt and then became hurt because mm. the way their doubt was met. And that's where a lot of like evangelicalism or fundamentalism's wounds are self-inflicted. Mm. You know, you could foster that and welcome it, but mm. you don't. And, you know, some people are going to quote unquote intellectually deconstruct to the point of leaving a church, no matter what mm-hmm. that's, you know, but there's a lot of people who probably would still be there if their doubts had been met with more curiosity rather than conflict. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, my story is super, super common in that way. What I did do a little differently is that I, a lot of things were changing in my life. Um, when I left the church that I had been in, um, I did not, I said not to go into full-time ministry Mm. long-term, Um, because I was so sick of the whole thing. And every time somebody Mm. would mention anything having to do with Christianity, not Jesus, but Christianity, I would just want to vomit. Mm. So I started, I went ahead and used my degrees, started in journalism, lived happily ever after in that regard. But I think this, the Holy spirit was very much still quietly working in the background and kept me well i mean how how could the spirit not do that with all the scriptures hidden in your heart it's impossible (laughs) so it's it's a cautionary tale but it's also an encouraging thing for parents that Mm. even if you're terrified that your kid is going to apostatize apostatize you can you know you can hide god's word in their heart and they'll stop at heresy they won't go to like Mm. full Mm. apostasy Mm. um because that was my agent read my book and he goes, well, you're not an apostate. And I was like, well, that's, that's a good review. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, that's the endorsement on the front. Yeah, well, that's the, she's, that's not the she's not an apostate. <laughs> um, but I stayed close enough that there was something, I was still nurturing something, but I was rethinking it. And I was throwing off a lot of that rigid certainty hmm. and perfectionism. And when I had kids, that's when a lot of things got real because, A, I had to, you know, there was some more real answer. Are you going to baptize them? Are we going to take them? All that becomes less theoretical. Mm. And sorry about that. Can you hear me? And we're, we're back. It's all right. As long as when it's all like one thing, it's easy to just cut yeah. a whole chunk. So, yeah. So I'm, 
I'm in a hotel and nice. um, they have, they, they're trying so hard to be like perfectly integrated to everyone's tech. And in doing so the smart speaker just randomly goes off and throws everything every mm. few hours. Mm. <laughs> like, mm. I could have done without the smart speaker guys. Yeah. Yeah. That's like when you have AirPods and they like shut on and off, like, and they're like, why, why is it connecting to that thing? Three rooms away when the, that's crazy. Yeah. I take it out. Like the TV stops or something. <laughs> yes. It's like, <laughs> like this is too connected. This it's is too, too connected. much. <laughs> exactly. I don't want to hear the conversation in the car right now, but I can hear the conversation in the car. Yeah. Anywho. Um, so yes, the ravages of traveling, but I was, um, I think I was talking about the fact that when you're having kids, the things that I had still internalized, the perfectionism, mm. the need to be certain, a lot of that stuff, the fear, the anxiety was still in there. And so it both was forcing me to articulate answers that I didn't, I had just kind of left hanging mm. Mm. and reckon with a lot of my own stuff. Mm. And so that's where it was, it got very, very difficult and very, very rich. And I was really excited and it was great to encapsulate all of that in writing, because I think mm. it helped me even in the process of writing and any writer, well, you know, you've written a book, you know, mm. it, you suddenly realize what you think <laughs> as mm. you're writing, mm. you put it down yeah. and you're like, that's it. That's, I finally put it in words. So that yeah. was, that was that. Yeah, you know, a part of the the internalization that you're speaking of, it's really fascinating how God or our ideas of God operate on an unconscious level. So you go through a time where you intellectually or cognitively say, well, I don't really believe that. You know, I don't think that's how this works. And on conceptually, I don't anymore. But it has been so internalized, whether it's a overly critical spirit, you know, or this demanding perfectionism that part that i have associated with god intellectually i'm like i don't think that's how it works anymore but on a visceral internal level i still feel that sense of judgment i'm still feeling that internal critic that i associate with god or the divine or whatever it is so it's different to dismantle things intellectually and then to start to transcend them internally on a bot that's on a more bodily and emotional level so to work through that individually is already a complex thing, but then to do so with kids, like, I don't believe that, but I freaking feel it. And I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still very anxious, even though I know there's nothing to be anxious about. <laughs> Before we, I really want to talk more specifically about like kids and navigating yeah. through that. Cause I think there's so much practical wisdom that could be there. Shortly before you left your the your journalism job to focus on this book there was this january 6th moment right a bunch of uh predominantly white folks and you know many of whom uh, seem to be uh representing jesus or are very evangelical ish stormed the u.s capitol there's confederate flags and horns and face paint and jesus save signs anybody who has any critique of christian nationalism it's your worst nightmare basically all on display how did that affect your writing for this how are those even connected um they're quite connected mm. um I mentioned doubt and hurt as being a reason that people go on this, what a lot of people are calling the deconstruction journey or that they become alienated from their church. 
but Christian nationalism or Trumpism or whatever you want to call it is, is another big reason. And I labeled mm. it disgust. I think there's a lot mm. of people wow. who encountered the beliefs of the growing beliefs among white Christian conservative evangelicals and couldn't be associated with it anymore. Those folks I think are in a really hard place and I had them on my mind a lot as I wrote this book because they still want to theologically or doctrinally, they believe the same thing that they believed 10 years ago, mm. but politically they're being kind of alienated. Mm. And while I definitely have seen where the theology and the politics and all of that are intertwined, and I see them as sharing a common seed. I, that not everybody would agree with that. And I don't think everybody, not everybody's theology necessarily shares that common seed. And mm. so I think there are a lot of people who are feeling particularly betrayed and very frustrated because they really want to be giving their kids the same doctrine that they grew up with. Like they want their kids to have, like, I'm, I want my kids to have different theological beliefs, different spiritual experiences, but there's a lot of folks who just don't want them wrapped up in Trumpism and being mm -hmm. told, you know, that, I don't know, that this is a Christian nation that, you know, certain races were always meant to be enslaved. Well, God knows whatever else mm. um, that, that people are told in the like depths of this stuff. And so I, I, I have a lot of compassion for those folks because they are seeing something that is egregious mm. And kind of, I think some of them are at the beginning of a long road of mm. picking through things and going, oh, wow, that was always going to head out there. And then some people are just grieving the loss of something mm. that, mm. that could have been really beautiful. Mm. And so that they were heavily on my mind. And what I tried to do in each chapter is to pick an issue that you could have approached through any of those issues, through any of those lenses and extract it down to the actual conversation that we're having. So those actual things that we believe and that are, like you said, the kind of the echoes that remain with us. Mm. And like that, when we talk about hell, regardless of what you believe about hell, you have to figure out what you're going to do with shame and amends mm. and justice. Mm. And regardless of what you decide about politics, what we are talking about is power and how do you relate to power and authority mm. Yeah, and so just helping people step back from the structures and systems that they are struggling with and say, okay, actually what you need to do is this internal work relating to this thing that shows up in your life in a whole lot of ways, how you relate to authority shows up in your life with way more than just your boss or your mm -hmm. pastor or the president. It shows up in how you relate to many, many things, and especially mm -hmm. how your kids, how you want your kids to relate to you. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I was trying to do was say, at the root of all of these things we're struggling with, there are, there are deeper things we have to deal with. Mm. And those things also have, are very much ingrained in parenting. So before you know what you're going to tell your kid about 
LGBTQ relationships, you have to reckon with what you believe is a, you know, a blessed family mm, structure. Mm, yeah. And that that's as important as where you land on a certain conversation. Yeah, no, that's, that's so great to draw people because people are fixated on symbols and people are fixated on structures and they mistake those things for the substance of a thing when they're not. Usually they're there to hold together the substance of something, laws and, you know, even religious rituals and, you know, political laws, like these things are not the point. They're actually supposed to hold together a common life if we talk about, you know, polis and politics or rituals are the forms we have to give you access to the sacred. The rituals aren't the point. And to name the structures and the imperfection or flawed nature of them and to draw people into the substance, I think is very, there's a lot of wisdom there and a lot of freedom for people to get into the depth, even in their own lives of what do I actually think and what actually matters? What is, what is the thing beneath the thing that is actually the thing here? that I can go deeper in and then offer that and, and guide people forward in that. So I love, love that so much to start specifically with parenting and kids, like in a more general broad sense, you know, many of the young adults, adults, however old they are leaving Christianity and leaving the church, you know, but still in their own ways, perhaps on the Jesus path, still wanting to keep following Jesus, wanting to keep get, having a, a direct connection with God. You know, I think oftentimes desiring a concrete path, you know, desiring the community to do that with people are leaving questioning, do I want to stay a part of this? Um, is this something I want to give my children? Is it worth it? But I want to like that whole thing. In a general way, what, where do you begin? What advice do you have for, for those people who are, those aren't intellectual exercises anymore. That's, I have a one-year-old, I have a three-year-old. Are we going to church? But I love this, but I also really am over it. And I could, I'm at a point where I don't have to, you know, like, what do you, where do you begin with that group of people? Which I think is a growing, increasing group of people Mm -hmm. right now. And it's certainly after covid people realized like, oh, hey, I lived without it. And Mm. my life is some people, I mean, I've heard from a lot of people who said, wow, I'm so much less um, stressed. I I had Mm. been stressing out a lot about things my church was doing and saying, or Mm. by the performance of Sunday morning. Mm. So yeah, you've got a lot of people, Mm. not only has there been this social thing going on but the pandemic comes and forces everybody home and asks the question are you worse off you better off Mm -hmm. where are you and i think a lot Mm -hmm. of people answered that question in a certain way and the again i think for a lot of people what where the the journey begins is deciding um, what is what is it what is the essential thing that I want my kid to get when I think like do I want to take my kid to church why what would I be hoping that they get from that uh, community uh, um, people explicitly talking about God reinforcement about what I'm talking about worship. And I think you have to ask yourself, 
is there any other way like is church absolutely where that needs to happen is that the best place to happen mm. for it to happen is there things is it worth the fact that they might be exposed to some other things that i don't agree with mm. and i think it's about being able to get to the heart like what did i want for my kids in scripture why did i want my kids why did i start thinking about why I, my kids should memorize scripture well i wanted them to have comfort in times of struggle and I wanted them to have a connection to a spiritual tradition that has a stabilizing and comforting effect on people in their, I mean, there's all sorts of research that shows that when you have, when you are spiritual, like when you have a spiritual life, you're more resilient against depression, addiction, other things. There's a reason like all of the 12 step programs mm. tap into this, like the, a transcendent relationship is really helpful. So among other things, I wanted that for them. Mm. That's going to inform the way I introduce them to scripture. Are we going to have a family flip chart of memory, memory verses, or are we going to engage the stories of the Bible and talk them out? Are we going to be liturgical? Are we going to like pick a theme and pick different readings about it? Um, how I think the how and the what and all the specifics have to stem from the why. And so a lot of the book is a lot about leading people to find their why when it comes to spiritual tradition and legacy and heritage and what you're going to give to your kids and questioning some non like discipline, which is actually something that every parent, regardless of their spiritual upbringing has to have, but then our spirituality, our religion came in, like had all these prescriptions for it. Mm -hmm. So it's thinking through all of the decisions that you're making and, and thinking, okay, what is it that I want my kids to take from this? And you can follow that line of self-inquiry as deep as you want. I mean, you can, on the, on the school's chapter, it's about, well, what do you want? I want my kid to be educated. Like that seems simple enough, but why? What do you want your child to do with that education? What kind of education? What, what do you want to be contributing to? And or why do you want your child to be educated? So that they can have a competitive job? So that they can, you know, and I think just answering those questions for yourself is very clarifying because then you're looking at just the reality of, okay, so what's available to me? Like church kind of is what's available for people who want their kids to be in a community based on the spiritual likeness or whatever that's. And so in that case, yeah, you're probably going to find a church and you'll figure out how to compromise or whatever. If they're wanting something, if that's not you know, if a, if a community of people who believe similar things spiritually isn't the reason, then there's clubs and there's mm. service organizations and other things. And so I think that's the, the main thing is both the kind of internal, squishy, idealistic, sometimes self-inquiry of why matched with what are my actual options? Like what's actually available to me? schools. I actually have private schools, charter schools, public schools. I actually have our homeschool, mm. you know, those are my real options, but matching that with a deep understanding of myself 
making those choices. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, that's the, uh, the work of, a a good educator and a good guide is pushing back responsibility on people. Cause you could say, do this, or you could say, this is an invitation to reflect more deeply on who you are, what you desire. And then the form, like we talked about the forms and the structure and the practicality of it is birthed out of the why, you know? So I always appreciate people pushing back responsibility on others to continue to become whole human beings. You know, I think that sometimes I'm like, a lot of churches have done a good job creating converts. Some do a good job making disciples and it doesn't seem like as many do a good job creating and allowing people to be whole human beings. You know, like Absolutely. when we talked about the doubting earlier and if it's met differently, we it, the, the people would be in a different situation, right? Can I be a whole person? So I appreciate that. And, you know, with, uh, you know, you are pushing people back or inviting people back to begin and go deeper into the why and then allow the practical parts to flow out of that. So for example, like in our own house, it's, well, the form of something means I'm changing some words in this story that I, that in our, is in our house. I'm not saying that I'm saying this, you know, and also I think a helpful guiding thing for me when it comes to like the kids and Bible stories and the Jesus, you know, tradition and me desiring, you know, to, to invite them into that story and to let them know, like, this is in our, this is, this is as followers of Jesus, this is what this is, you know, in, in the world. Well, sometimes uh, besides changing, you know, words in stories, it is a, uh, inviting them into other practices and for me a helpful thing is even thinking about stages of development stages of consciousness where the people are familiar with like like fowler's pastoral stages of faith or spiral dynamics or there or there's many different ma developmental maps for people because i'm like well that's the thing is some people grow, evolve, deconstruct. And it took them, I'm like, it took you eight years to get here. And you're trying to, whether you're a pastor preaching or you're a friend ranting or with whatever it is, I'm like, you're trying to get people there in one conversation or one sermon series. Here's why God is dead. And now why we're over here. It's like, it took you 12 years and a lot, a lot of illusions you had to surrender, a lot of personal hurt to let go of, a lot of real grief. Like 12 years you're here and it's good. People can't go there. So I'm like, for my three-year-olds, five-year-olds, you know what, this story, this is how it happened. Right. Yes, Jonah did happen, you know? And then when they get a little bit older, it's like, well, all right, we both know yeah. this is probably... So to me, the developmental part is like, Huge. What is develop? My mom would say as a preschool teacher back in the day, she's like, we would have a phrase, what's developmentally appropriate, you know? And I feel like that gives a lot of freedom of like, I don't, I don't personally probably, this is, you know, I'm not teaching my kid. Well, Genesis one through 11 is probably prehistory, you know, before Abraham, but at that point there's stories. And those are some of the practical things. Even I think about of telling them stories, omitting certain things. And I'm like, that language is ridiculous and not helpful. What are for you in the house, if you don't mind, like there's the why, but there's a practical thing of like, we still pray every night because we do this, you know, for you, what would be an example as you're working through all of this? Yeah. Praying is a great one, actually. Um, praying and we do on 
religious holiday, like on Christmas and Easter, we do make an explicit connection to the spiritual aspect of that. Like we don't, we tried very hard not to participate in like the, the secularization of like, because we want them to understand why we do Christmas and what, and for us that connects our family to a trans to the spirit. We mm. want them to see their experience as our children, like their belonging to us and our acceptance of them and our love for them as being explicitly connected to their relationship to God. I want them to feel not just be able to make that jump. Oh, mom loved me. So God must love me, but to actually go there with them. Mm. And so when we pray for them and we pray with them and we invite a spiritual aspect to our discussions, to our family traditions. What I'm wanting them to connect is that warm feeling of mom loves me. She's snuggled up in bed here with me. She's praying for me to have good, a good night's sleep. She's praying for me to feel loved and whatnot, connecting that to God and connecting mm. that to something transcendent. So that when I am not mm. her source their source of belonging uh, or authority uh, or whatever <laughs> God will be mm. rather than, and I want to, I want to put that in a very stark contrast to you need to be obedient to me so that you'll be obedient to God, which was how I was raised mm. that the experience of authority is you must obey. Mm. And I want you to do that. God put me in charge. And so that your understanding of God that is as someone you must obey is the training for that is you obeying me. That's a similar like connection between the parent and God, but I think it shows exactly how different that relationship can feel <clears throat> when it's right. yeah. authoritarian versus acceptance and belonging based, mm. because we do know from research that parents kind of are the stand in for something bigger than myself. They're like the first introduction to mm -hmm. a, a God or mm -hmm. a higher power or whatever, because we are, we are the higher power. Uh, in their yeah, 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 definitely. And so I want to model, I want that to be explicit. It forces me to be intentional about it. It doesn't mm -hmm. let me get away with being like, I feel like a lot of the parenting we grew up with, I grew up with, that very authoritarian obedience-based parenting, the thought mm -hmm. was, well, even if I asked them to do something that was really pretty selfish, it was just to make my life easier. It's good for them to learn to obey. Mm -hmm. And I think that allowed a lot of bad habits. <laughs> mm -hmm. Whereas if it's belonging based, I have to, what the message that they're getting and the quality of their relationship to me and the justification for what I'm doing, like it's, it's, I'm a little more accountable to it. I don't just get to say like, yeah, well, having to listen to your parents is good practice. Mm. It's good to just learn to be obedient. I'm actually having to say, what is the effect? They are, do, am I communicating belonging? Am I repent? Am I apologizing to them? Because I want them to see restoration in action. And when I apologize to them, am I connecting that to God's love for me and unconditional acceptance and that kind of stuff? Or, you know, I that's the probably the most practical mm. 
thing for us is that we've kept praying. We've kept, we read the Bible as well. And we talk Mm. about how God's love shows up in the stories Mm. pretty much. Mm. And, and then just conversations with the kids. We still talk about those things. And so when I, they want to go back to church and we will eventually probably go back to church once we Mm. figure out where our church died over the pandemic. So Mm. we have to find a new one. And yeah, I, I think also taking the non-spiritual things that we would be doing and connecting them to this Mm. overarching Mm. message. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. And it's, it's interesting even to hear like, at first, I think hearing you with like, okay, well, we're praying on holidays, we're making those connections. And then like, but you're like, but we're also even things as explicitly Christian as reading the Bible, desiring to go back to church, you know, like, I think it, it could have been heard when you're saying that I'm like, I don't know if she's like that, if she would do that. So it's, to me, it speaks to like the uniqueness of each one of our paths in terms of our own whys and how we figure that out, you know, cause some right. people it will be, you know, I think my wife and I like just closing down our church are like in honestly in no rush to like, let's figure this out and get somewhere. We're like not in that place at all, especially after leading for like a decade, but I do have unsettled, like, what does that mean? I'm just in that, like, what does that mean for the future? You know, for our kids, we're intentional with all the things you're saying, you know, mm-hmm. as the writer of the book, you'd be very proud, you know, the wise, <laughs> the things we're doing, but sure. there is like, huh? Like, I mean, I, di- I didn't grow up with like evangelical culture. I had a very different mm-hmm. path to get to where I am, you know? So I have a lot less baggage and trauma and hurt. Like that's something I'm really thankful for is like, I don't have any church hurt because I didn't grow up like that. You know, that is good. I had this profound awakening moment with God while I was 18, while I was on mushrooms. And two years later, I'm like, I think God wants me to be a pastor. So I had a whole different I love experience. That so much. It's probably <laughs> real. It's probably more real than a lot of people's conversions. Well, well that, you know, my, so my first book that came out in May, it's called The Making of a Mystic. And the subtitle is My Journey with Mushrooms, My Life as a Pastor, and Why It's Okay for Everyone to Relax. Oh my gosh. Yep. <laughs> ordering that. I was pretty adamant. I was like, I, I need much. This is a non-negotiable mushrooms is in the title subtitle. Um, oh my gosh. That's so Yeah. Great. But it, it's to me, it, it does speak to the, the freedom, the lightness and the playfulness that can come from embracing your own path. You know, when right now, when the, the old world of a simple framework of the Bible said it, or the law says it, I'm like, we are in such a drastically changing situation, you know, mm-hmm. and, and on culturally, politically, just everything, you know, and right. the, to, for people to know and feel the permission to have the freedom to be like, this is what we're doing. This is the path for us. There's a larger path. There's this great tradition. This capital G, capital T. We're all jumping on a moving train when we become Christians, but we have to figure out the uniqueness of stages of life where we're at personally the communities we're in like it's people i think that permission to find your everybody's way is really really important you know when it's Mm -hmm. it's it feels way less formulaic and simple and mechanical than it was even 15 years ago things have just been hyper sped up in terms of cultural changes 
And now I want to ask one more thing that I think is so practical and complex and, and can be very challenging parenting. Now, the racial dynamics here in Hawaii are extremely different from yeah. the continent or the mainland, you know, like race on the continent was triangulated from the beginning with like indigenous first nations, people, white folks, you know, AKA colonizers and, you know, slave traders and slaveholders, and then, and black people who were brought over as slaves. So race is triangulated a very specific way here. It's a different dynamic. Mm-hmm. You know, Hawaii's we're Hawaii's in the U S many people here would consider Hawaii to be not a state, but under military occupation, which politically and historically makes sense. I think it's an accurate statement, but, you know, you write that you vow to raise your children to acknowledge racism and prioritize. And this is an important phrase right here, right? The peace of truth over the pleasantness of lies, because things are wrong in this world. And to zoom in more, things are wrong and disorganized. When we think about the politics of organizing bodies, when things are disorganized, when it comes to power and inequity and equality and people based on race, um, you know, you write that you would be damned if your children will ever be anything but clear on what God thinks of white supremacy, right? That's why I appreciate that because there's like, let's talk about racism. And if you push that further and more specifically, let's talk about institutionalized white supremacy and what that is, right? Some people get halfway and they don't want to go right. the whole way. Right. What is that prioritizing the peace of truth over the pleasantness, pleasantness of lies mean to you on a practical level? Because if you, to me, if you do that as a white person in the United States, who's aware of the institutionalized forms of racism, white supremacy, it just is, it's, it's hard. And it mm-hmm. creates a lot of awkward ass conversations with people. Mm-hmm. You know what, even when they ask, like, what's your last op-ed about? You're like, uh, um, <laughs> and you yeah. say the title and you're like, immediately, it's just the most awkward moment. And mm-hmm. It has real life consequences for relationships, for family relationships, for, and then how that affects your kids' relations. Like this is real life, you know, and what it does. So with all that in mind, what does that look like for you? And how do you navigate through that with your kids, you know, desiring integrity and the piece of truth? Yeah. Oh boy. (laughs) Um, I will say that this is something we are, we, I I meant what I said in my book. I wasn't like, we are explicit about it. We Mm. took our kids. I took, we haven't taken my younger son, but we took my daughter who's eight um, a while back to the Memorial for peace and justice in Montgomery, um, Alabama, which is the equal justice initiatives, beautiful memorial to the victims of lynching. And we took her and we walked her around and we explained in not graphic language, but real language that lynching is when people kidnap and execute someone because of, because they don't like what they did and they don't wait for justice through courts or whatever. They take it into their own hands and it happens when more powerful people do that to less powerful people. 
people mm-hmm. that they can do that to without getting punished. We have that conversation. We go, we see it. And I wrote, this is one of the things I wrote an op-ed about. <laughs> and she, my daughter had a very, like, and she recognized it. She had moments of anger. She like grabbed a stick and she said, if anybody's going to lynch anybody, I'm going to defend. I'm not going to let them come near me. I'm near mm-hmm. them. I'm going to fight them away with this stick. And we went to the Freedom Writers Museum so that she could see here's how white people can be part of mm. the fight. Here's a good, like, we didn't just want to leave her with. So, you know, here's your legacy of being the oppressor. <laughs> we wanted to give her like, here's another alternative. Here's another path that you can take mm. as a white person. And it, it's always as a supporter. It's not mm. as the idea maker. You are getting on their bus. So we, we do like, that was one example of a real thing, but then it's continuing that conversation with her. And I, I mean, I've got a thousand examples of how it's come up in the conversations that we've had, but it's been about being that explicit. And basically in my mind, I think when I think, is this an appropriate conversation to have? Mm, yeah. I think what would the myth be in your mind? Like if you heard about slavery at five years old because you saw a movie about civil war time or you somebody mentioned you know if it came up in your history class what would be the alternative narrative you would be creating and i need to make Mm. sure that you're not creating that Mm, that you are understanding fully i'm giving you information Mm -hmm. and at the same time keeping them away from graphic images you don't have to but i think what actually people are afraid of and what people not afraid what people are trying to avoid is that they don't want to feel complicit. So they'll say like, I don't want my kid growing up feeling like they're bad because they're white. And it's like, no, actually you don't want to feel bad because you're white. Mm -hmm. That's your anxiety. They don't take that. They don't feel bad Mm -hmm. because you got to give them an alternative and they, they will latch onto the alternative and Mm -hmm. they'll get it. And I have a lot of faith in children to be able Mm -hmm to take that on. And frankly, we don't live in a culture that has made innocence an option. Mm. You know, if a young black man has to be coached on how to interact with the police, my kids need to understand not to call the police. Mm. We've got to talk about the police. Mm. If, if my, if, you know, if systematic racism exists, my kids have to know about it just as much as a black kid. Mm. If, the struggle of indigenous people is important. Like if their their uh, their quest for sovereignty and self governance is important, my kids need to understand that and grow up with it in a way that I didn't want there to be a narrative that they had to dismantle and replace. I wanted That's them to so grow good. up with it. Yeah. And you that narrative starts early. Mm. And so I just wanted to get going from the beginning, mm. and I my kids blow my mind mm, at the way that they get it. The other day, my daughter does voice lessons at this Mennonite church in town and they're a great church. They have a immigration ministry to asylum mm. seekers and it's the real deal. It's very salt of the earth. And I was telling her about it when we were pulling up, she was asking what part of their church was for. And it's like where they do all this. Mm. 
And she goes, oh, so like what Jesus would actually do. Mm, <laughs> I was nice. like, you, you're getting it. You're getting it. Or like we were talking about. You're like, are you 20? You're like, are you 22? <laughs> it's, people, it's, I mean, she is an old soul, but I, I firmly believe that every child can make these connections. Mm. The, the other one that just, I loved, okay. When you hear white privilege, white people want to debate that and debate that and debate that. Does it exist? Is it real? Blah, 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 blah. Where did it come from? Well, so we're talking about, um, a protest, a historical protest during the civil rights movement. And I don't remember which one it was, but a bunch of people got arrested during it. <laughs> it might've been uh, the Edmund Pettus bridge or something like that. Mm. So I'm talking to my daughter about it and we were going to go to a march locally, like it may have been a black lives matter march. And she said, mm. well, are we going to get arrested? Mm. Are we going to get hurt? And I said, well, you know, protest always runs the risk of some, you know, people getting arrested or the police coming out, but I said, I don't want you to be afraid because you're probably not going to get hurt. She goes, ah, it's because I have white skin. Mm. And I said, well, yes, that makes it less likely that you will get hurt. And I said, but no one should get hurt because we have the right to protest. And she goes, I know, but we have, she said, I think white people have super rights. And mm. I was like, she, she's explaining white privilege mm. because she sees it and she gets mm. it. You know, and she was at that point, she was seven. She just turned seven. And she's not, I mean, she's bright and whatnot, but she's not some kind of prodigy in the sense of her ability to see these things. And I really want parents to worry less about their children having to handle negative emotions mm. and having to um, process negative information that doesn't contribute to their good self and and really invites them to locate themselves in relationship to others and be part of healing and change mm, that's wow. that's that's a big part of my work <laughs> that's yeah that's amazing i think that i think that phrase will even even stay with me like i said in hawaii's a day-to-day -day is such a different context um mm -hmm with the shared spirit and system of whiteness, you know, through the colonization here and through the, the same form of, of that, you know, on, on the continent. But that idea of if you don't explicitly say something and shape the story, what myth and larger governing story will be internalized because it will. Exactly. About, America about whiteness, et cetera. You know, so I think the intentionality of shaping that story for them is so, so huge and important and can is not something where it's like we talk about this once, but this is a thousand micro conversations along the way as you're growing up, as I think what's appropriate. And I'm I'm kind of, you know, wrestling with that and doing that. But I think if I'm not explicitly shaping a larger story, there will be a story that's internalized. And if public education with the banning of books has their way, that's probably not the myth I want you believing about what it means to be an American, et cetera. So that is so good. I'm going to keep it. I'm, that's something that will stay with me. That's really good. 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 Yeah. For the listeners, 
that is a glimpse, you know, the, 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 what we talked about race and, and, and stories, some of the practical things at home. I really think that's a good glimpse of more depth that you would get in the book about the stories about for the parents and how we all got here. And then also what it looks like to move forward, which I'm so, I think is so good for this book. So one more time, the new book out on October 11th, Bringing Up Kids When Church Lets You Down, A Guide for Parents Questioning Their Faith by Becca McNeil. Congrats on the book. That's that's amazing. That's good stuff. I, I'm going to say it for the third time. So, so important. Right, right, right now. It's such a good thing. So congrats on that. And thank you for taking the time to do this. Oh, thanks for waking up early. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course. Thanks, Becca. <laughs>